Chapter One of For Fifteen Years. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deanna Beauvais. For Fifteen Years by Louis Albach. Translated by Elizabeth Warmly Latimer. Chapter One The Prison Register. Le Livre de Accru. Fifteen years had passed since the murder of Pierre Mortier. Fifteen years. Fifteen years had been the sentence of the man condemned for that murder to the galleys. Those fifteen years that Jean Mortier shrank from in his despair, have they brought with them no pain, no punishment to others? The answer to this question lies within the leaves of a journal kept by Gabrielle de Monterey. I turn to it and gather light upon the subject which it would take long to obtain in more indirect ways. Gabrielle herself shall begin by informing us how the idea came to her of writing down, day by day, the events and the emotions of her life for fifteen years. The very evening of her return to Paris, she wrote thus in her diary, I will have no confidant whatever. I will even deny myself the comfort of a confessor, I made up my mind on that point during our journey. Ah, if I could only feel sure that my confession might be made to God alone without the interposition of a priest, who probably would freeze into a formula the answer for which I looked to God in heaven, I would fling myself upon my knees before my God, and without words pour into his ears my tale of shame and sorrow. My tears might wear away the hardest stone in the church pavement for I have no right to hide myself in a nunnery. But the best of priests would grow weary of consoling and advising me. He would say over and over again the same things that he had said to me in his first burst of charity. He could not possibly vary his guidance to suit the multiplied emergencies of the dreadful life that I now see before me. It is not that I am proud. It is not for lack of piety that henceforward I will dispense with a confessor. God, who reads my heart, will read there my confession. My duty has become that of the wife of a condemned criminal. I must wear my chain. I must pass its length through my fingers every day. I must feel its clank as I walk. I must bend under its weight. It must lacerate my flesh. I must never suffer it to be broken. I think I have heard that in prisons the register kept of the arrival and release of the prisoners is called le livre de cru. Gaston and I are passing into the shadow of a great trial. When shall we pass out of it? Shall we ever pass out of it? Ours is a life sentence. Can any one give us pardon? I have resumed my place as a wife that I may share my husband's punishment. The alienation that has parted us shall not be made greater by this crime we will walk together side by side all the rest of our lives but we can never again be linked one to the other between us there will stalk a spectre whose ice-cold hands will take our hands in his and freeze us by the pressure i shall commit to the pages of this book my every thought i do not mean that i will jot down exactly literally every fact I care not for the sort of vanity, self-consciousness, which takes pride in a well-arranged confession. No one will read these pages but myself during my lifetime. 
this book will be hidden in a cabinet of which i alone shall keep the key if i die leaving my task unfinished without having been able to raise gaston to the point that i earnestly desire he may reach that point of repentance on which pardon may flow down without his self-respect being utterly crushed out of him my husband may tear up and burn this painful record i shall be released then though released alone i shall be no longer at his side to plead for him if my son finds these papers after my death i beg him to read them with tender love for me and a respectful pity for his father yes i beseech him to treat his father with considerate pity to do wrong is the worst of all misfortunes and great crimes proceed commonly from great infirmities mankind dear roger have the right to be severe sometimes it may even be their duty to be cruel it is the law of self-preservation and self-defense god who knows better than men and who sees and judges us on a higher plane than that of mere society is alone able to measure the weakness of the criminal and his temptation he knows how to adjust the measure of the guilt to our measure of moral consciousness he will make allowances for the ignorance of men our children are our judges i do not refuse to accept thy verdict o my son but do not base it upon that of society give judgment according to god's justice he has no scaffolds no places of imprisonment i have confidence in my roger if when he is grown a man he should find these pages he will pity us both he will not harshly judge his parents i trust that i may bring him up to be so scrupulous on points of honor so capable of judging for himself in such things that he will feel no need of placing a barrier between himself and subtle temptations by undue severity toward the faults of others my dear son it is for you i write for you i live before you i humble myself so far as i can without further condemning him who was earlier than you in my affections gaston asks me no questions he tries to appear unconcerned but he only seems humiliated when he tries to assert himself his gaiety becomes so violent so bitter so unnatural that it frightens me it makes me feel like bursting into tears we shall be each other's punishment my gentleness will make him conscious that my resolve is quiet but inflexible while he by his attempts at deception will keep me ever painfully conscious that i have not been able to assume or to keep that command over him that is necessary in our position we travel back to paris almost in silence a silence that affected even roger sometimes i dread lest child as he is he should understand or try to understand the situation he is graver than i like to see him too grave for his age but how can i smile and make him merry his english governess seems to imagine that it is her duty to train up this little gentleman whose father and mother are so grave to be grave and silent too she is wrong anyhow i do not intend to keep her she is a good woman and will easily secure another place i intend by degrees to change all my servants and adapt my household to the new life i propose to lead shall we remain in paris that depends on the visit i am now about to make till that is over i know not what we are going to do the same day between eleven o'clock and midnight i have seen her 
she has accepted my offer but it was hard to accomplish and what do i feel now that it is over i have done my duty is my presentiment one of coming evil or one of coming relief my conscience is a little comforted but my heart seems fuller than before my remorse is less my fear is greater and this is the state in which henceforward i must live i must learn to grow accustomed to my cup of poison yes i know now something tells me that i have done right but that i shall suffer from it terribly i went to the village of boulogne the poor woman was living in an empty house there everything in it had been sold i could well believe alas that her resources had been drained to pay the costs of that terrible trial the law had been a harder creditor than her landlord for the landlord at boulogne had taken pity on her and had let her for the present remain in her empty home probably reflecting that she would take good care of the premises till another tenant could be found she had not yet reached the stage of sharp and bitter poverty she had found work she was at work when i went in though she seems delicate she has the strength that proceeds from the first energy of despair but i think i came to her help just in time she would soon have failed entirely and in a few days have been utterly broken down the only manner in which i found it possible to make my way over her pride and her mistrust of me was by speaking of her daughter the little girl will be very pretty some day but she is now a poor melancholy little flower that has blossomed in sadness and been watered by tears not caressed as a child's life should be by rays of sunshine she shall be roger's little sister when i knocked at the closed door of the house that door where no hand seems ever to knock now the empty shop gave back the sound as if i had been knocking at the door of a tomb it is a tomb it was a prison i heard the bolts drawn back madame mortier had shut herself in to keep pity from intruding on her sorrow at first she did not recognize me and yet her eyes had been fixed on me all that day of the trial i had my veil down i was dressed in black she was in deep mourning we might have been sisters but she has no wish for family ties she wanted to get rid of me she held her door ajar unwilling to open it i was afraid i might tremble as i spoke to her as i drove out there all along the road i said to myself what will become of me if she should guess the truth from my looks or my behavior i resolved not to tell her the truth at first hereafter if in order to complete my work i must make her our confession i possibly may but first i must have linked her heart to mine at present the truth would be useless fatal to us both it would hinder the good i hope to be able to do to her happily i was able to address her gently and simply as i had hoped to do i told her that having heard of her second misfortune i had come to see how i could be of use to her i have no need of anything was her answer she took me for some charitable lady and though she is doubtless more pious than i am i could see that her repugnance to such persons was a bitter root from her experience of piety she would have closed her door at once if i had not hastened to give her my name that name produced an effect which at first frightened me she opened the door wide drew back to let me enter and looking at me with eyes that sparkled with excitement said ah you madame that is different 
she walked before me up a little staircase leading from the empty shop into her chamber nothing was in this room but her bed and the crib of her little girl she could not ask me to sit down i leaned against the mantelpiece to keep my limbs from trembling i was trying to find suitable words but she spoke first and thanked me in a tone of scarcely concealed bitterness for the honor i was doing her by returning her visit only i had come too late i saw you in the courtroom she said suddenly interrupting herself and seeming harshly to reproach me for having gone to such a place as i might have done to a theatre then without giving me time to assure her of my pity for her husband she went on monsieur your husband did what he could for us but he was too kind his too great interest led possibly to the verdict against jean i hardly know how i remained standing as she said this my legs bent under me i was afraid of falling on my knees she said the truth although she knew not the full bitterness of that truth to me gaston had prejudiced the jury against the prisoner it would have been better had he openly charged him with the murder rather than pretend to make excuses for him they might have been afraid on circumstantial evidence to send him to the guillotine but gaston's excuses offered them an alternative that sentence to the galleys was a compromise without which he might have been acquitted i told her as best i could that we had been deeply affected by the verdict and that we both felt assured of the innocence of monsieur jean mortier since when asked the widow since he killed himself i assured her it was not so but i could not tell her the hour when this conviction broke upon me she added still more bitterly you thought him guilty when i came to see you i had doubts of his innocence then i own i answered but from that moment i would have done anything in the world to save him i had spoken too vehemently my words probably appeared to her too full of feeling it was you then she resumed in a tone of reproach who sent me money to pay the lawyer ought i to have concealed the truth i did not dare i could not frame a denial yes it was i i answered why did you send it me by a priest then instead of coming yourself and bringing it to me there was autre in her tone as she put this question evidently i was undergoing a cross-examination because i did not wish to be thanked i answered but now you are willing no i am not then why have you come here because i am sorry i did not come before the trial she did not seem convinced by what i said her black eyebrows were contracted into a frown for a few moments and as her brow cleared again i saw a sudden flash from her dark eyes did any one suggest to you that priest's visit no one did you unmoved by any other person conceive the idea of finding me a lawyer i did do you suspect anybody i had to tell a falsehood i said no and to drown the effect of this falsehood on myself i hastened to add your visit made a deep impression on me i thought much of your eloquent grief of your conviction of his innocence which i almost shared which i wished to share that is why i advised you to choose the best lawyer to be had the best indeed she shuddered and clasped her hands together wringing them one and the other as she did so you ought to have sent him word by that same priest that he was called upon to defend an innocent man he would not believe me 
Thank you for your kind intentions, madame, but you threw away your money. She had become aggressive. One felt from her present bitterness how much the poor woman must have suffered. She was passing through that bitter stage of grief when injustice makes the sufferer cruel. She took a sort of pleasure, now that she had me in her own house, in torturing me. Had I not let her visit to me result in terrible disappointment? She was taking her revenge. I had not expected to find her thus. I had fancied she would oppose my plans, but I thought it would be with tears. I knew that she was proud. I did not know that grief had hardened her. She would not honor me by shedding tears in my presence, even supposing she still had tears to shed. I submitted to all this as the beginning of our expiation. I looked at her. In our previous meetings I had not sufficiently remarked the strong will which I now read in her dark eyes and in her beautiful face, full of intelligence and energy. If that woman should ever be possessed of my secret, she will be implacable. Is it not madness to expose myself to the chance of her finding it out? And, besides, though I may trust myself to keep my secret, can he be trusted? She is in mourning for the loss of her good name as much as for her husband. The very day when a chance presents itself of setting herself right in the world's eyes, she will embrace it with all her strength. She will burst through all obstacles. And I, alas, had thought of laying all bare in her presence, of dragging up before her my husband for sentence, and of compromising my son. Now I feel that such a step would be suicide. But I would not draw back. Her courage excited mine. The sight of her little girl sitting on the floor, looking with a sort of tender passion, singular for a child of her age, at a cheap, flimsy-dressed doll that she was hugging in her arms, a present, doubtless, from her unhappy father, gave me some hope. Could any mother refuse the chance of making those dear little cheeks, on which poverty and sorrow had already laid their hands, less pale and less hollow? The little girl had tied a new black ribbon round her doll. In all their penury, the mother had found means to put the little one in mourning, and the child had found mourning for her doll. The mother, thought I, will aid me to vanquish the obduracy of the wife. Is it not mother love that has given me courage for my task, and brought me thus far toward its accomplishment? I made believe to see nothing but the little girl, with whom I was not yet acquainted, I stooped down, drew her toward me, and kissed her tenderly. She drew away from me, even the little child. Can there be something mysterious and mesmeric in strong impressions? The mother's savagery had been easily imitated by the little girl, but because, as I caressed her, a caress had by chance fallen on the doll, the little maid seemed softened by my homage. The baby motherhood in her heart was touched, and the real mother, in her turn, seeing a flush of pleasure in her little daughter's cheeks, was likewise softened. She sighed. I hastened to profit by that sigh. What did I say to her? I cannot now remember. Anyhow, my words are not worth recalling and transcribing. What I said was from my heart, and there I can always find it if I want it. I spoke to her of plenty. I had to grow eager on the subject myself in order to make her interested. I forgot the peril of intimacy between us. I had a sort of vague hope that the peril might be annihilated by the fervor of my earnestness and good will. I asked her to let me be a sort of godmother to her daughter. I spoke of my son. 
i went on till i saw a mist rising before her eyes i did not stop until the mist became a tear she sobbed her mother tenderness had overcome her anger she took my hand true you too are a mother she said and then she gave a deep sigh perhaps i have no right to refuse for florence what i would certainly refuse for myself at that i made my proposals more definite she must come and live with me in my house i was very near saying something about friendship but was ashamed to do so it seemed to me as if a sort of fear would prompt the word rather than real feeling i told her that i wanted a housekeeper a person to superintend my linen and my mending a seamstress by the year i had considerable difficulty in defining the situation i expected her to fill if i did not give her to understand that i expected of her some kind of domestic service she might feel surprised alarmed and shrink from a situation out of keeping with our social positions she might fancy it a snare my compassion for her misfortunes my sympathy with her grief would hardly account for my coming with no excuse to ask her to consent to live with us as an equal in our home and yet it goes against my conscience to bring a woman into my house as a mere chambermaid before whom i ought to fall down upon my knees and to whom i ought to minister she listened quietly at first to all i said to her about our family arrangements but with a visible repugnance which i could see was opposed by the desire of not letting slip this chance of providing for her daughter then by degrees i could feel that her curiosity was at work then that she was trying to account for things then something more suspicion had taken hold of her and incited her to a fresh attack on me it seems very singular in you to have formed such a plan she said is it not natural we feel that you have been the victim of a great injustice which we could not hinder you will help me to avenge it will you not avenge it i murmured almost in spite of myself avenge it against whom against him the murderer this time it was no effort to dissimulate the peril was too real too menacing not to rouse up all my courage do you ever hope to find him then i asked without flinching indeed i hope so but for that she said this with such an energy of faith that i repented for a moment that i had ever come in search of her but as things were all weakness might be dangerous i needed great boldness and great courage i said in a tone of compassion that deceived her as to the motive of my question have you any clue anything new since the trial i not yet there was a hard set look about her eyes which denoted her fixed purpose she will be turned aside by no discouragement she thinks and thinks rightly that the murderer must have been one of the men who were supping that night in the restaurant with pierre mortier but whom can she interrogate oh if monsieur henri d'herbois were to return from india if she ever meets with him alas on what a fragile basis rests my tranquillity i am at the mercy of a chance meeting i am about to bring under the guilty man's own roof the very person who is in search of him a woman who will seek him no doubt even there and the only protection i can afford to gaston is my own prudence and the chance that he may not be betrayed by any accident this frightful risk o oh god i here accept this madness this folly of bringing together in contact in one house 
the wife of the man who is innocent and the man who is guilty i will commit deliberately in the hope of disarming the judgment of heaven by this very deed may i be able to do madame mortier all the good i hope to do may i help her to bring up her daughter may i set right at the price of my own peace some of the consequences of my husband's crime without bringing the truth to light against him and perhaps whenever that truth is discovered he who is all truth will have pity on us for the sake of this reparation if i were the voluntary accomplice of my husband i should secure our own safety by leaving this unhappy woman to her poverty and bereavement in a month she would be in the hospital never to leave it again alive there would only remain the helpless orphan we should be delivered how horrible delivered from what from a virtue to be acquired from suffering that may expiate but nothing can ever deliver us from remorse on the contrary it would then be worse than ever no away with such cowardice i hope to reconcile by a mixture of human weakness and of human dignity my maternal and conjugal self-interest with my duty i will secretly repair as far as i can the evils of which we have been the origin and should it please providence that the reparation leads to a public scandal ruinous to gaston and myself i will submit i will force him to submit doing me at least the justice to believe that i have done my best to turn aside the legitimate curiosity of this woman from discovering the truth after i had sustained her fixed look for some moments without flinching madame mortier with that suddenness i had before remarked in her said i accept i will come to you thank you you are too kind in thanking me but when you are tired of providing bread for us i interrupted her you will earn your own bread i said so be it but if you find i have not done enough to earn it or that i can earn it equally well and with more freedom elsewhere you are to send us away and i shall not complain on my part i must make some stipulations i trust you will not accuse me of ingratitude when if after your charity has done its work and put me beyond the reach of destitution i ask you to give me back my liberty i hope you will never ask for it we will try to make our hospitality very pleasant to you do not make it too pleasant she cried with a singular distrust or i should leave you what a strange woman at once fascinating and dangerous how glad i should be to love her and how greatly i shall dread her in my household but i thanked her with all the sincerity i felt for having yielded to my wishes i was almost afraid of betraying myself but i took the little girl up in my arms and pressed her to my heart and kissed her yes i rained kisses on her precociously grave little face which alarmed me and seemed a reproach to me i made her smile i promised her playthings and dolls and this time feeling free to express exactly what i felt with all my heart i was so eager in trying to give her pleasure that madame jean mortier was reduced i dare not say seduced to sympathy she said madame you have found the best means to make me obey you i fear that i may love you before long why fear it because i have made a vow never to love any one any more you were wrong no i shall keep my vow well this oath will not be broken by feeling for your friends a strong esteem anyhow she added resolutely if i find myself inclined to care for you too much i can go away she has these sudden fits of ferocity 
which give her a kind of grandeur in my eyes, for underneath them I perceive traces of a proper pride and delicacy. We talked a long time. We settled the preliminary details of our arrangements. She is to come to-morrow in the afternoon. Her room will be all ready for her. Gaston will be put upon his guard. I shall not sleep to-night, but I fancy I shall pray more easily. The next day. She has come. The importance, the peril of the step I have taken, have greatly increased during the few hours that have just gone by. Yet everything went off smoothly, far better than I had dared to hope. But this smoothness of itself alarmed me, for it indicates the intention of every one concerned to practice dissimulation, to accept a truce, or to contrive a snare. How shall the tie I have been endeavoring to create between this victim and ourselves ever be broken? If I find it too onerous, if it proves no solace to my conscience, unless in regard to justice, how shall I dare get rid of it? I never can send her away, and if she ever wants to go, I must do all in my power to keep her here. Unless, indeed, her wound being healed, her resentment lulled to rest, and her material prosperity improved by my solicitude, she might make easy or possible that confession which it now seems to me can never be made. What meanness! Am I already speculating how to give up my duty? Alas! I feel that I shall often have fits of this kind, which will exhaust my courage. I thought it was rising to heroic, and it is nothing beyond what is commonplace. I am pleading that my cup may pass from me. When I was this morning arranging Madame Mortier's chamber, I did all sorts of little things that I thought might work upon her feelings, making believe, for instance, to forget a photograph of Roger that had been sticking in the frame of the looking-glass, and putting up in a little dressing-room that opened near her bed a charming little couch for Florence. For I was timid and cowardly. I wanted to impress her by the first sight of her own chamber. I was imprudent, too. Very early this morning I had knocked at the door of Gaston's chamber. He was not aware of what I had in hand. He suspected it, probably. Anyhow, he had rallied his courage. He would show no weakness before me. What means he takes to keep his courage up, my poor unhappy husband? Did I need that he should give me a new cause for uneasiness? What will come of us, if attempting to find forgetfulness he should sink into degradation? It is certain that he has collected a perfect store of strong drinks and liquors in his chamber, and that he drinks by himself morning, noon, and night. I ought to oppose this vice. It is a mean way of cheating destiny to let him go on increasing his indifference, lest he should alarm me by some sudden outbreak of his conscience. But what can I do? Ah, if we were but alone, if, with closed doors, I could talk to him, reprove him, help him to cure himself, force him to humble himself as a repentant sinner, constrain him to docility, to self-abasement, which I might make use of for his salvation. But I have made life's tete-a-tete impossible. I have broken up our solitude adieu. I have no longer time. I made believe this morning that I did not notice Gaston's troubled eyes, that I did not smell in his chamber that odor of alcohol which is beginning to pervade it permanently. I opened the conversation boldly, almost gaily. I told him that I was about to begin the good work for which we had left Geneva that not knowing how otherwise to make madame jean mortier accept my assistance 
i had thought the best plan would be to bring her to live in our home i had the hypocrisy to make believe that i thought she might be useful to me being an excellent seamstress that by taking her into the house i should save money which would be an additional advantage in doing a good action when i began to speak he seemed agitated and nervous i thought at first he was going to give way to anger but i was so calm i seemed so determined that he did not attempt to intimidate or threaten me but with a sort of strident laugh he said as you will my dear i tried to reassure him in order that he might not betray himself on first meeting madame mortier i made a most agreeable sketch of her in every way he shook his head i know her by sight he said recklessly i saw her in the court-room she does not look soft-hearted in the least i was indignant at this fashion of accepting my indulgence did you ever suppose i asked him curtly that she was capable of advising the murder for which her husband was condemned to the galleys gaston's face grew very pale i went on the utmost she may have done was to advise him to kill himself if he had been guilty but he is dead now he did kill himself stammered gaston in a bewildered way i came near losing my self-command but i contrived to say gently she did not advise him to commit suicide because she knew that he was innocent gaston seemed reassured not by what i said but by the way i said it and he went on in an indifferent tone almost that of a man who aspires to be a lady-killer she is very pretty i forgave him that piece of impertinence i even took it half upon myself for i owned that i thought her pretty and distogue i related to him though i did not tell him everything the particulars of my visit how hard i had found it but persevered i wanted to make my husband acknowledge that he approved of my arrangements and i asked him to aid me by his cordiality and above all by his natural good breeding to make the poor woman feel at home in our house as soon as possible as gaston listened to me he kept pouring out and drinking large glasses of water he wanted to recover his self-possession he saw clearly that the interview before him was so perilous that he must do his best to have full command of his nerves his best defence above all if i was to be on his side was to have full command of his reason i left him strongly resolved and master of himself will there ever come a time when i may have to wish that he had at least for a moment the unblushing hardihood which is common to great criminals that he might have me more at liberty to invest to attack his conscience without being all the time upon my guard as i am now against some sudden lapse of will which may give him up to punishment before he has been brought to repentance for his crime my heart beat quickly when i heard a carriage stop at the door it beat too when madame mortier rang and when she entered i was afraid of turning pale i kissed roger very hard which made him kiss me back again in like fashion and that gave a little color to my cheeks she too was pale i was struck by her air of dignity her troubles have developed in her an instinct which has brought out her natural grace and supplied deficiencies of education i went to meet her holding out both hands and saying thank you she accepted my thanks without protest being probably embarrassed or it may have been because she feared to abase herself if she declined my friendliness her eyes were moist which i was glad to see 
ah i shall tremble if some day those dark eyes which seem always on the alert could weep no more here is a playfellow for your little girl i said drawing roger forward i had given him instructions i had begged him to behave very nicely to the lady in black and to be very friendly with her little girl either roger was very obedient or else i had taken an unnecessary precaution his kind little heart would have led him to do the right thing without my lesson he took florence by the hand looked at the poor little orphan two seconds with a smile and said will you come and see my playthings she consented by a little nod and that she might not be behind her new comrade she pulled from under her arm the doll wrapped round with a black ribbon which i had seen her have in boulogne ah those dear children will they be our punishment or our bond of reconciliation we are both doing what we do for their sakes for my son's sake i went to seek out madame mortier for her daughter's sake she has consented to come here i took her to her chamber she found out all my little devices at once she stopped on the threshold and turned toward me this is too nice for me she said abruptly but i cannot give you anything less ah is this then how you lodge all the servants in your family there was sarcasm in that question i protested against her thinking herself too well cared for pressing her hand which she left a few moments in mine she went into her room and dropped into a chair then with some harshness of tone but in a voice that trembled as if almost moved to tears she said i cannot understand all this my misfortunes can hardly have inspired so much kindness what is your motive tell it me i was frightened my heart was very full had she spoken to me thus much longer i must have dropped upon my knees before her oh may such a temptation never come upon me again till the right moment there is in her a strength and gentleness combined a strength of feeling that attracts me frightens me and tends to make me humble myself before her happily her attention was diverted from her scruples at this moment the children came back as we were speaking they came in holding each other by the hand comrades already brother and sister roger had a charming air of protecting his little companion he was carrying florence's doll with but little regard to the doll itself but with manifest deference for the little girl who had trusted it to him florence was carrying a trumpet which she had picked out of a collection of warlike toys belonging to roger at the first glance she was enchanted by the pretty little bed i had prepared for her she thought it beautiful i dare say it reminded her of playthings she had seen with envy or else of the pretty draperies under which the image of the infant saviour is shown at christmas in the churches she had never before had a bed with such pretty white curtains curtains so charmingly looped up on each side of her pillow she drew near the bed with a kind of respect and ordered roger to lay the doll down on it for she must be sleepy then by way of thanking my boy for his obedience she laid the trumpet softly at the feet of dolly who lay there on her back and said she shall have it when she wakes madame mortier had watched this little scene as i had done she sighed and calling florence with no harshness this time in her voice said to her do you feel very glad to be here darling the child gave a glance around the room which took in the group we formed her mother myself and roger who was looking at her delightedly the little bed the doll the trumpet and replied 
Yes, I am very happy here. Would you like to stay here? Oh, yes, always, forever. Roger had crept up to me, and taking my hand, slyly kissed it caressingly. I knew the meaning of that kiss. It is my boy's most earnest and most eloquent way of thanking me. He, too, was glad that they had come to live with us. Poor child! His pleasure in having a companion was a reproach to me for the past. I have never taken pains to find him playfellows or friends of his own age. I have been bringing him up too lonely. I have come very near making him a self-absorbed, unsociable child. Will mother love always suffice a boy? I loved him selfishly. I might have made him selfish. In keeping him all to myself, I did him wrong. He made me feel this by his caress, by his thanks for his new companion. I bent down, I kissed him, and interpreting aloud part of what I felt that he had silently communicated to me, I said, You must not thank me, my boy, but madame, who has consented to come and live with us, and who has brought you a little sister. I drew him toward the widow. The poor woman did not shrink from the gratitude of the innocent child. She took my son in her arms and pressed him to her bosom. Her heart was touched in spite of all her resistance, all her prejudices, and it did not hurt her pride to show her gratitude by caressing Roger. She pressed a long kiss on his forehead on the same place where I had just put mine, her lips and my lips, her heart and my heart, which may never join, have at least one common end in view. She looked up at me and said softly, He is handsome, your son, and he seems good. I saw by the emphasis upon her words that she wanted to make me understand, without precisely expressing it, that Roger was like me, and that she thought me good and beautiful. I hope he will be a true and honest man, I said, without quite knowing what I was saying. I felt constrained to uphold the honor of my son, as if by doing so I would better shield his father, for perhaps she might think him like his father, too. Madame Mortier seemed satisfied. Roger was the guarantee of my sincerity. She made no further resistance. She only felt the pain inseparable from her establishment in a new home, which made her feel afresh her sorrows and her widowhood. She only retained a certain embarrassment in accepting so much more than she could feel she had any claim to from me. We talked for a few moments on a footing of intimacy. I told her all that was necessary, and before I left her alone to arrange her things in the closets and wardrobes, I asked her Christian name, begging her at the same time to grant me the privilege of not calling her Madame. She told me her name. It was Emilienne. I once knew a nun of that name, who was very fond of me, in the convent, where I went to live before I was taken into the house of my guardian. Ah, if that name might but prove a happy omen! As she did not put the same question to me in turn, I said of my own accord, My name is Gabrielle. That was the name of the angel who announced the coming of the Savior, she replied, with an air of friendliness and of devotion. But I shall only use that name in my prayers, madame. I had rather not use it on other occasions. I did not cross her. Reciprocal regard will come after a while. If I could only confide in her without telling her everything— if I could only cease to fear her, as I do, and could devote myself to making her my friend and to making her happy. End of chapter 1